Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to look at a very familiar passage uh, this evening from 1 Samuel 3, probably one that you heard in Sunday school uh, growing up, as they're probably the two most familiar passages in, in the book of Sam, uh, 1 Samuel, this one and uh, David and Goliath. So 1 Samuel chapter 3, but I think that as we look at this passage in, uh, in its larger context, that it, it, uh, it has a little bit more for us than we might originally anticipate. So 1 Samuel 3, and let's begin, uh, we'll read this, this chapter together. Obviously it falls right on the heels of what we just read in our scripture reading, uh, but let's, um, let's read the story together so we're familiar with, with what it says. So the verse, three, or verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did, not call, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by the sacrifice or by offering. Well, Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and, did not, and, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. 
And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself against, or revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help in this time to understand what you have said to us in your word and to not treat it lightly, uh, but to take it as what it is, not the words of man, but the word of the Lord. So let our hearts be transformed by what we see here. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, this is a familiar passage of Scripture, and one that, as I said, you, you probably have heard in some Sunday school lesson if you grew up in church at, at one point or another, that the Lord appeared to Samuel at night and, and, and calls him. Uh, but there's one particular phrase that I would like to sort of zoom in on uh, that, that, that maybe draws out more from this passage that we might initially anticipate than... Um, than if, we, uh, than if we maybe heard the story in, in Sunday school. But I think before we, we do that, uh, we need to understand the context in which chapter 3 falls. We might say this, that, that chapter 3 is hedged in by a couple of, of, of dark days in the nation of Israel. So chapter 2 we read... Uh, the, the, the sins of, of Hophni and Phinehas and how they, uh, they, I forget the word that's used there, they, um, for lack of a better term, abused the sacrifice of the Lord or treated it with, with disdain and were, were basically oppressing the people of Israel and, and stealing meat from them and not prescribed as it was in the Mosaic Law. Then it records that they're, they're sleeping with the women that served in the temple, sort of turning it into a, 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 a false a temple to a false god where temple prostitution was a, was, a, was a normal part of their worship. And so this is a really dark picture of the spiritual condition in Israel. So that's chapter 2. Then you get to chapter 4, which is the other side of the, this, uh, this hedge or the other side of the surrounding passage. And in chapter 4, uh, the... the the Philistines are attacking uh, the nation of Israel. And so the, the, the nation of Israel gets the bright idea that, hey, rather than turning to God and, and trusting in him and allowing him to fight for us against our enemies, why don't we get the Ark of the Covenant? And we'll bring that thing out as a good luck charm into the battle. I mean, and it, it's so intimidating that the chapter 4 records for us that even the Philistines are, are, are scared for their own lives because something significant has happened in the land of, of Israel, and surely they're going to be destroyed. But that's not what happens, is it? No, instead the Philistines capture uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and it's, it's a, a, another dark day in the nation of Israel. In fact, uh, Hophni and Phinehas die on that same day in battle. Um, uh, Samuel, or Eli, excuse me, receives the, the news of this, and he, he falls over in, in shock. He, he breaks his neck, and he dies. Phineas's wife, who's pregnant, she goes into labor. Right before her death, she names the baby Ichabod because the glory has, been, has departed from the nation of Israel because the ark of, of God has been, has been taken. And it's this dark picture of a, of a real spiritual uh, depravity and a real, a real spiritual um, famine in the land of, of Israel. 
So this is what's, this is what's going on in the surrounding passages of, of chapter 3. And chapter 3, in a sense, kind of answers for us the question, why? Why was, why was it like this? Why was the depravity of the nation so significant at, at this time? And it's in this story that, we, like I said, we get something of a description. Now, if we look at the story in, in four scenes, we'll look at it first in terms of an introduction to the story. And the story, the introduction is found for us as it begins here in verse 1. And, and this is how the story begins. Now look at verse 1 again. It says this. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And this is something that we've already read in chapter 2 as, as a, chapter 2 was a contrast, right? Hophni and Phinehas are, are abusing the sacrifice of the Lord, but, but Samuel's faithfully serving. And, and they're sleeping with the women in the temple, but, but Samuel's faithfully serving. Okay? So what we read here in the beginning of verse 1 is not new. Okay? The boy Samuel is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. But look at the next phrase in verse 1. And the word of the Lord was rare. In those days, there was no frequent vision. Now, we might be tempted to then quickly skip over verse 1 and, 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 and go right into this familiar story, but I think we need to park a little bit on this phrase, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Not only does the story begin with this description, but you notice that the story concludes with a similar but opposite statement, right? So look down to verse 21, and here's how the story finishes. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So the passage begins with the absence of God's word, and it concludes with the presence of God's word in verse 21. So something has changed in this story between verse 1 and verse 21. Now, in order to understand what's, what's being said here in verse 1 in more detail, we need to note what this phrase means, that the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. What we need to note is that the, the second phrase explains the first phrase in more detail. Okay, it's, a, it's, it's, it's elaborating on it. So the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and then it's explained in this way. There was no frequent vision. Now, lest we be confused, the word vision is just another way of describing God's revelation to his people through a prophet, right? So you'll remember um, the prophet that Isaiah had a vision and saw the Lord high and lifted up. And sometimes uh, when, when we read of, of, of revelation that the Old Testament prophets received, they received visions from the Lord that they were to communicate to God's people. And sometimes those visions are recorded for us in Scripture. Sometimes they're not recorded for us in Scripture. But um, that's what a vision is. It's, it's God's communication through, uh, through the man of God to the people. Now, just so we're clear, remember uh, the very familiar proverb back in Proverbs 29, uh, verse 18. You don't have to turn there, but you'll remember this because you, if, you, if you learned it in, in the old King James. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Hey, do you remember that particular, that particular, that particular proverb? Uh, it was often misused to, to, to talk about the importance of, of casting a vision. So you've got to have a, a vision for your, for your church building, and you've got to have a vision for your ministry in five to ten years, and if not, well, the people are going to perish, okay? 
Uh, and that's often how that verse was, 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 was preached. Well, many will be disappointed to know that this is actually about a prophetic vision from the Lord. Where there is no prophetic vision from the Lord, then the people live in, in unrestrained ways. But you notice how the, the, the proverb finishes. Um, but it says, but blessed is the one who keeps the law. Okay, so this, when, it, when, when Proverbs 29 is talking about where there is no vision, the people perish, it's this idea that, that where, where there is no word from the Lord, then the people live, live lives that are unrestrained. But blessed is the one who heeds divine revelation. Okay, so when we're talking about uh, there's, there's, there's the word of the Lord is, is rare and that there's no vision, then what it's saying is that, that the Lord was not revealing himself to his people. So what was lacking then in 1 Samuel 3? The word of the Lord was rare and there was no prophetic vision. In other words, there was a profound lack of God's word in the life of God's people. Now this doesn't mean that the Torah was unaccessible. Okay? It's likely that Hophni and Phinehas weren't doing a good job of, of bringing the Torah to the, to the people, but it doesn't mean that it was unaccessible, but it's saying that there was no prophetic word being given from God to the people at this time. Now, if we were to look at the book of Judges, which chronologically precedes uh, 1 Samuel, you would get to the end of, of Judges and you would read this phrase at the end of Judges, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then you open the pages of 1 Samuel chronologically, and the next thing you find is the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no prophetic vision. So this is a dark time in, in Israel's nation, right? So, so prophets are few, and the priests are corrupt, and the word of the Lord is, is rare, and everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, why is this the case? Well, this is the case because sometimes, and even as we look at other Old Testament passages, that when the, Lord of the, when the word of the Lord is rare, that it is a sign of judgment on God's people. So let me read a couple of other Old Testament passages for you that, that sort of elaborate on this truth. Amos chapter 8 and verse 11 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. But listen to what he says next. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So as a form of judgment, the Lord's going to send a famine, but it's not a famine of, 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 of water or bread, but it's a famine of communication. The Lord's not going to give guidance like he typically did. Micah chapter 3 verse 6 says this, Therefore it shall be night to you, without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The, the, the ESV study Bible says of Micah 3, 6, that God's silence is their sentence. Okay, because of their sins, God is, is silent. And then Lamentations 2, 9. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Okay, so this is this is description of God's judgment. In fact, you remember you get to the end of uh, end of 1 Samuel and you remember that that Saul 
has, has sinned against the Lord. He hasn't entirely wiped out the Amalekites like he should. And so now God is, God, God's against him and God's uh, responding in judgment against Saul. And so you get to 1 Samuel 28, and you read this, that, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So what does, what does Saul have to do then? Well, he goes and he visits the medium at Endor. And, and she brings Samuel back up, and Samuel's like, why have, you, why have you awoken me? And Saul says, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answered me no more, either by prophet or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. In other words, God's, God's punishment and sentence against Saul is that he's no longer giving him revelation from the Lord. So this is the condition of the nation of Israel. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. God's judgment is on them for their disobedience, and God is giving them the silent treatment. And this is how 1 Samuel chapter 3 begins. The Lord, where the Lord now in 1 Samuel 3 goes from being rare and intermittent to being frequent and clear. And, and 1 Samuel 3 is the transition of God beginning to speak again in the days of, of Israel. It kind of reminds us something of the, the Protestant Reformation, right? So the motto of the Reformation, you remember, is, is after darkness, light. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church had, had grown so corrupt in its day, there was rampant immorality, there was selling of of, uh, of, of indulgences. There was the buying and selling of, of church offices. There was the manipulation of, of, of purgatory and, and her holding it over the, 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 those who attended the Roman Catholic Church. And, and then the, the, through the work of Martin Luther and other reformers, the, the, the truth of the gospel is unleashed. And what, what really helped to, to spread the Reformation in, in, in a way that it was unexpected was the, the power of the Word of God and, and putting the Word of God into the hands of the people. So the first thing the, that, the, that the Reformers did, when, what Luther did when he ends up in captivity, first thing he does is he starts to translate the Bible into German so that the people of, of, of the common man can, can have the Bible in their, in their own language rather than relying on the church's interpretation of the, of the Latin Bible of the day, now they have access to, to God's word. And it's really God's word that unleashes the, the power of the Reformation. So John Wycliffe, he made this statement that his goal in translating the scriptures, he says his goal is that the, the plowboy would know more of God's word than the Pope. And that was his goal in translating the Bible into English to make sure that, that the average person could know God's word and to be able to interpret it for himself. After darkness came light. So, so there comes a revival when God's word uh, becomes present in the life of the people. Okay, so that, that sort of introduces the story. Now, let's work quickly through the story because it's a familiar story to you. And then we'll, we'll bookend it there with the phrase at the end. So, so the Lord appears to Samuel, right? And this is, happens in, in verse 2. At that time, the literal reading is, is on that day of, of verse 2. Okay, so it's at that time or on that day. So the Lord, in those days, it was rare. 
But now on that day, something different is going to happen. The Lord speaks. Now, what you can do is you can take verses 2 and 3 and you can set it aside as something of a parenthetical statement. Okay, so, so you could essentially put parentheses around it and, and, and set it aside. Okay, because it, it just gives us a couple of de- details. Uh, Eli's eyesight is, is getting bad. He has, he's gone to lay down for the night. And the lamp of, the God, uh, lamp of, of God had not gone out yet. So the, the menorah, which was positioned in the temple, was still, was still, would, would burn through the night until morning. So it hasn't gone out yet. So this happens sometime in the middle of the night. And, and Samuel is asleep, or he's gone to sleep as well. So all these details, you kind of set them aside. And if we set those details aside, then connect verse 1 with verse 4. Right? So it says, Then the Lord called Samuel. So here we have verse 1 to verse 4. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. But now, verse 4, the Lord called Samuel. So something different is happening in this passage. There is a, there is a transition. Now you're familiar with the story. He hears the voice. So he thinks it's Samuel and Samuel's, or he thinks it's Eli and Eli in his condition may have needed help uh, at, at night, and so might not have been uncommon. And, and Eli tells him, you know, it wasn't me, go lie down. And so he comes back again. He says, it wasn't me, uh, go lie down. And then he comes, it's not till verse 7, you know, it happens two times. In verse 7 we see this. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, this does not mean in this context that Samuel didn't know the God of Israel. But the word of the Lord in a prophetic sense hadn't been communicated to Samuel yet. And so when the Lord called him audibly in the middle of the night, Samuel does not recognize it yet. Okay, so it's, it's not, this, this verse is explaining, it's not blaming the fact that Samuel didn't know this. Well, then in verse 8, the Lord calls a third time, and finally it dawns on Eli that this might be the Lord, word of the Lord calling Samuel. Now, a lot of people have, have rebuked Eli for not knowing it was the Lord right away, but it's the middle of the night, right? And we're not always very bright in the middle of the night, and so I, I, w- I would give the benefit of the doubt to Eli in this condition. I, I've, I've told the story about how um, we had eaten at, uh, at uh, Red Lobster and with, with my wife's parents, and then I went to bed early that night, and Julie came in, she said, my throat, it just, it feels really weird, and I feel like it's like closing up, and now, mind you, she wakes me up to tell me this, and I said, well, did you take some Benadryl? And she said, yeah, I did. I said, you'll be fine. And so then in the morning, she says, how does my throat look? And I said, that looks fine. Why, why do you ask? You know, and she said, well, don't you remember last night when you, when I approached you about this, and you told me, did you take Benadryl? You'll be fine. I said, no, I don't remember that at all. So, so in the middle of the night, you know, you're not always, you're not always firing, firing on all cylinders, and so I'll give Eli the benefit of the doubt in this case. So then the Lord finally comes, verse 10, and he, and he stands in Samuel's presence, and, and he calls Samuel, and Samuel's response, is, per Eli's instruction, is, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now, this is usually where the Sunday school lesson stops, is it not? Right? The Lord hears Samuel, and he responds, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. But the Lord's message to Samuel is really the third scene in verses 11 to 14. And it sounds good in verse 11. Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That sounds pretty amazing, but then the Lord goes on to to really pour out 
and pronounce his judgment on Hophni and Phinehas, and not just on Hophni and Phinehas, but on Eli as well. So notice verse 12. It says in verse 12, On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his sons from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. And notice the two things he says here. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. So the issue here is, is, is not just that Eli's sons were sinning, but Eli knew about it and didn't do anything about it to protect the honor of God. So Eli is complicit in this as well, and, and the, the house of, 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 of Eli is going to be taken away from him, and he's not going to be able to, his family's not going to be able to serve any longer in, in the temple. But the, the harshest pronouncement, or the toughest pronouncement, is probably in verse 14. He says, therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Now, sometimes when when we read pronouncements of judgment in the Old Testament, it's conditional. So if you don't turn to the Lord, then you'll be punished. But, But in this passage, it's not conditional. It's certain. No amount of of sacrifice can atone for the hardness of of the unrepentance of Eli's sons and their contempt for God Almighty. Now, what do you do if you're Samuel? Your first revelation from God is this message. And it's a pronouncement of judgment against your mentor and against your mentor's sons. So, of course, in verse 15, Samuel lies awake the whole night. And I don't think that's I don't think that's unbelievable either. Okay, we would be awake all night as well. And in the morning, he seems to get real busy about his duties trying to avoid Eli. And we've all been in this situation where we've tried to avoid someone. And Eli recognizes that Samuel is avoiding him and so he approaches him, he tracks him down. And he makes it relatively easy on him, does he not? What's he say? And he says um, in verse 17, And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. And then he says this, May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. All right. So at this point, it's pretty easy for Samuel to just relay the details because he doesn't want to face this curse that, that, that Eli is, is putting on him. And so he passes the test, and he declares to Eli all that the Lord has told him. And Eli's response in verse 18 is, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now that's the end of this particular section of the story, and the conclusion for us is found in verses 19 to 21. And it, it zooms out of the story and gives us a, a, broader, a broader context. So in verse 19, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So first, the Lord was with him, in verse 19, and let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, he was a true prophet of God, and what he said came true, even about Eli's sons. Second, we see that Samuel's fame 
spreads from, from Dan to Beersheba, across all of Israel, that they knew that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. And lastly, the Lord appears again at Shiloh. So the, in, in verse 1, the word of the Lord is rare. And now verse, verse 21, the Lord appears again, and it's no longer rare. Okay, the, Lord, the word of the Lord is no longer rare. Okay, so now as we turn to application of this passage in this, this familiar account, what do we learn from what's recorded for us here in the Scriptures? Is it, if you hear God's voice in the middle of the night, don't assume it's a family member, but assume it's the Lord and answer, you know, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I, I don't think that's what's being said in this, this passage. But if I can, if by way of application we could pick up on this phrase, the word of the Lord was rare. Now, obviously, in this context, the word of the Lord is speaking about prophetic visions, God speaking through a prophet, and, and we have a completed copy of, 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 of the scriptures, and so the Lord's no longer speaking through prophetic visions, and so it begs the question, is it possible today for the word of the Lord to be rare since we possess a complete copy of the scriptures? Of course, the answer is yes. It's possible for the, the word of the Lord to be rare because the problem can be on the receiving end. Okay, the problem can be with you and me. One commentator says this. Starvation may not come from absence of food, but from lack of appetite. And that may be the case here today. The, the problem is not the lack of access to the scriptures, but the problem may be the lack of appetite for the scriptures. Now, in a broader sense, what we're seeing in the church today is that the word of the Lord is certainly becoming more and more rare. Right? You have, have churches and denominations claiming to believe in God, but the word is, is becoming very rare. They, they, they don't hold to its authority. They've abandoned what the, the scriptures have said. And that's why you have so many so-called Christians embracing same-sex relationships and all kinds of other perversions of, of the scriptures because they want to believe in God, but they've, they, the word and the authority of the word has become extremely rare in, in the church. Now, the, the old theologian Francis Schaeffer used to talk about the two pillars of, of Christianity. He said, there is a God... And number two, he has spoken. And what's happened is, is believers today have divorced those two things. They're okay with there being a God, and they want there to be a God, but they're not as concerned about the fact that he has spoken, or they've started to reinterpret or twist what he has said. And on a broader scale of Christianity, these, this is what's happening in, 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 in lots of denominations and in, in churches today. But more narrowly, it's possible for, for you and for me to have the word of the Lord be rare in our lives. Now, we would castigate those churches for their, for their failure to uphold the authority of the scriptures in, in clear and obvious ways. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's easy for the word of the Lord to be rare in our own heart and in our own life. That our access to it is, we have lots of access to it, but our faithfulness to it, our consistency in it, 
our attentiveness to it can become very rare. So that we don't bring the word of God to bear on every situation of our life like we should. So if we face a conflict rather than, rather than leaving our gift at the altar, so to speak, and, and doing what we can to resolve it, we just the word of God doesn't come to bear on that aspect of our life. Or, or passages like whatever is pure and, and, and holy, think on, think on these things. It's just we divorce maybe the, the entertainment we consume from, from the word of God bring, coming to bear on all of those things. Or, or in our, thoughts, our thought life, you know, when we talk about the words of our mouth or the meditations of our heart being pleasing in, in God's sight, we have this, we have this divorce between the word of the Lord and, and how we're living our lives. Because the word of the Lord, in that sense, can become rare in our lives. Now, now I think if we learn anything from, from this passage, as we, as we look at the, the context, you know, chapter 2 and chapter 4 were the, the evidences of the fact that the word of the Lord was rare, I think it's this, that we don't want to live in a setting where the word of the Lord is rare. We don't want to live in a country where the word of the Lord is rare. We're seeing evidence of that. We don't want to live in a a church where the word of the Lord is rare. We don't want to live in a home where the word of the Lord is rare. So we want to bring the word of God to to bear on on every aspect of our life. There's a a dear lady who um, was telling me a story about how she, she gives a Bible to all of her grandkids. And before she gives them the Bible, she writes this particular statement in, 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 the, uh, in the Bible, in the, inside the front cover. It says this. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And that's something of what's taking place here in, in 1 Samuel. Right? Their sin... Their commitment to sin has, has kept them from the Lord, and maybe in response to the Lord's judgment is clear because he's no longer revealing themselves to him. But it would be better if the word of the Lord was coming to bear on every aspect of our life so that it kept us from the conditions that we see here in Israel. So how do we then keep from making the Lord rare? Well, we respond like Samuel. We approach, we receive the word of the Lord, and we respond like this. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that ought to be our approach to the word of God, that we have an openness to it, a willingness to receive it, and a willingness to obey it with hearts to say, Lord, whatever you say, I will do. Let's pray together. Father, we're... We're sober by what we see here and, and the fact of what can become of a nation, what can become of a church, what can become of a person when your word becomes rare. And we, we don't want that. Lord, what we want is to be a people of the word who bring the word to bear on every aspect of our lives. So would these thoughts tonight serve us uh, to remind us of the importance of knowing you and hearing from you so that sin doesn't keep us from your word, but that your word keeps us from sin. Help us, we pray, to walk in obedience to what we've heard in this passage. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Well, thank you for joining us tonight, and uh, hope you have a good week serving Christ, and we'll continue to faithfully live out what we, what we read here in the pages of Scripture.